Good morning. You're already thinking about that barbecue that you're heading to in a little bit. That's what's going on. Hey, good morning. It's good to have you guys here. Good morning. <laughs> hey, so, so special, special guest in, in light of, uh, we just had our annual meeting last Sunday and uh, uh, was nice to be with our church family. If, if you did not attend or didn't pick it up, we have a packet that uh, is out in the lobby, just reflects on our vision being allocated uh, in uh, the deployment of our resources. So you could go pick one of these up. And, uh, and I loved it. Uh, two things were evident at our annual meeting. Uh, one is that our people care. And, uh, and two, we care about the right things. And so we got to vote on, uh, on our um, constitution and our statement of faith. And if you haven't received it, there was an email that went out from our elders. And one of the things that came up was just the desire to see some biblical references uh, substantiate all those ideas. And so that was included. If you didn't receive that, you can email the office and that would be a wonderful thing. But one of the beautiful things that I love about this church family is we have three charter members that are connected, Bev and Ron Anderson. And, uh, and so fun to see uh, Ron Anderson and, uh, and his son-in-law, Scott, joining us this morning. And, uh, and the unique thing about Scott, he was our founding pastor 35 years ago, which is a special, special thing. Which means you're ditching out on your church family today. Are they going to be okay today? They, they, you left them in the capable hands of your son. Is that it? No, he's not there either. Oh, man. <laughs> what will they do? So I uh, would love to just reflect a little bit of the things going on in our church family. Man, we got VBS coming up, which is so special. If you didn't see, Aaron was out in the lobby uh, with some opportunities for VBS donations. And if you saw that cactus as you walked in, uh, Dirk Karasek asked Mary, Mary, what do you want for Mother's Day? And Mary said, I would love you to make a cactus for our VBS decoration. So sweet Mary is designing or having Dirk design some decorations for VBS, but excited for what this is. Uh, just a way to love our families in our community. I was standing at a pickup line in Brooklyn and a mom came up to me and said, hey, you're connected to Hillcrest, right? And, uh, and said, hey, when's that VBS registration going live? And so just a way that we get to love uh, the families in our community. And then uh, something else that I'm really excited about. This coming summer, uh, we are exploring what the kingdom of God is. Sometimes it feels like this elusive idea, and yet it, there's a simplicity to it. It is about a king forming a people under his reign. That it is about King Jesus forming a people called out of darkness into his marvelous light, to, to, to live under his reign. And so I'm excited for, for what our summer is going to look like. Uh, but as we jump into today's text, before we get there, uh, I just want to review a little bit. And, and so even as I'm feeling this, you're going to feel some excitement, I hope, from this. But there's also this, this brokenness and hurt just as I look around our culture. And so I, I was trying to debate, where do you start? And so... I hope even as I share some excitement about where we're headed, that, that you feel just the pain and hurt that exists in our culture right now with what took place in Texas. And, and so James is, I think, going to address a little bit of just where we go when, when that's taking place. And so as we head into this, I, I hope you even feel my excitement, but also just even the, the hurt that exists in our culture. What does it mean for us? What does it look like for us as we live and move in this, in this culture? And so over the past three years, here's what we've been working on. 
We've been developing who we are, what we're about, and where we're headed. And so I just want to walk through a little bit of that language that, that we finally landed on last week that now begins to help direct where we're headed. And so when we talk about our mission around here, we are people helping people find life with Jesus one life at a time. We're not Hillcrest the organization. We are people with the Spirit of God in us helping people find life, identity, joy in Jesus above anything else this life has to offer. And there are values that drive those decisions that we make week in and week out, that there is joy in Jesus that leads us to pursue Jesus through the word, that we are anchored in the text. And that informs the way we interact with the people around us, that we live with generous relationships, but sometimes it's hard to, to see that generosity lived equally. And so I love what Andy Stanley says. He says, do for one what you wish you could do for many. And so in that same way, intentional apprenticeship narrows that generosity to sometimes a few people that are in your direct sphere of influence. And all of that, and where James is going to take us today, with this heart for desperate dependence on God to move, desperate and dependent prayer. And so there's a, a, a strategy, there's a how discipleship actually happens around here. That it starts with this desire to follow Jesus, build community, and then seek transformation. That we gather on Sundays. You guys notice this? And we gather on Sundays, just like the church has been doing for 2,000 years, because we believe Jesus actually rose from the dead. And so we gather on Sundays to follow Jesus. But this tends to be, as much as I sometimes try to get you to talk to me a little bit, this tends to be a what? That's a little one-sided. And so how do we actually not just stay Sunday-centric, but actually move and grow as a community in our Monday to Saturday? We build community, our serve teams and our life groups. This joy in Jesus continues throughout the week. But, but if we stop there, our tendency is to become what? Man, a holy huddle where we start to become inward-focused, and so we hope that we pray, we watch, and we step to seek the transformation of those that have yet to find life with Jesus. And then we measure that. How do you quantify whether that's happening? And so sometimes you talk about budgets and buildings, right? And it's input measures. What we want to be about is, is those spiritual formation metrics that are happening in our lives. And so we've been asking these three questions. Am I experiencing joy in the midst of suffering as an expression of unshakable faith? Does Jesus really sit on the throne of my heart? And how does that buoy my life in the midst of whatever's going on? Am I pursuing God through his word with other followers of Jesus to think biblically about everything I encounter in my Monday to Saturday? I mean, I was watching the news feeds this week and it discourages me because some other followers of Jesus are elevating gun rights to the same level of issue of abortion. Rather than seeing this as an issue that we should and ought wrestle with, but it is not in the same category of right to life. How does the Bible actually inform my decisions in my Monday to Saturday? And so you watch followers of Jesus say, if, if, you're, if you were fighting for right to life, you ought to be fighting for this. And, and so how do you actually see those as separate issues? Because I'm thinking biblically about everything. And am I on mission, actively praying and watching as an everyday missionary to step into sharing this hope of life with Jesus? Do I actually believe that the Spirit of God is in me and, and is using me as an everyday missionary? And so at our annual meeting, we said, where are we going? 
that we want to inspire multi-generational communities, that, that the world needs more local bodies of faith, more churches than fewer, that we want to inspire multi-generational communities towards a lifetime of those three characteristics. And so this year, what is the step we think we are making this year? What is the most important thing we could do in moving in that direction? We just feel we get 60, 70 kids showing up here on a Sunday consistently. How might we join God in what he's doing in these lives? And so we desire to increasingly model and give our faith away to future generations so they have what we have. How can we as a community continue to foster these future generations so they find life with Jesus? And so that's going to get manifest in three very specific ways this year. It impacts our campus. So our campus team is re-engaging an organization called Building God's Way. Are you guys familiar with that? So much like Slingshot is an organization that partnered with pastors and pastoral searches, Building God's Way helps with campus issues. And so we're debt free. We're not planning on taking on a massive mortgage. Instead, we are saying, how might we develop environments to help facilitate discipleship amongst kids? And, uh, and it impacts our staffing. And so in this digital discipleship age, it is a gift that we have Jack on our team and that he's now stepping into this vacant comms director role that we've had. We just want to continue to provide resources in a way in our Monday to Saturday that continues to help us be people, helping people find life with Jesus. And so Jack is stepping in to a comms role around here. And then third, what we're hoping is, is these ministry structures, that we are a multi-generational community. We just had brunch in a birdhouse with this beautiful time of kids, grandkids, fathers, friends gathering together. And, and, and trying to see more, not exclusively, but a few other multi-generational opportunities. And then, and then trying to come up with some, some tactics to share God's heart around this idea of human sexuality. Not because it's any more different than any other issue that we wrestle with, but right now our culture is, is wrestling with this issue. And so trying to design some tactics that reflect the display of God's heart around human sexuality. And, and I just assume in three primary ways, those that are, are wrestling with accepting our culture's view of human sexuality, uh, around heterosexuality, homosexuality, gender fluidity, uh, those that are personally wrestling, I just assume you're in one of these three areas, either wrestling with accepting the culture's view, personally wrestling with this in, you, in your heart, or third, you genuinely want to try and help people find life with Jesus, but for tools to, to know the how. So looking forward to what that's going to look like this coming year. So as we get into James, there was a, a song that struck me, an old hymn, and, and you guys may or may not be familiar with this hymn. Here's, here's what was running through my head this week. Because I was looking around at the hurt and brokenness in our culture looking at the, the, the hot takes that were just flying from people on your Twitter feed. God, where are you? Are you even present? Are you aware of the pain and hurt that's going around? Do you even care? And here's the song that played in my head. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And so James, as he concludes his letter here over the next two weeks with us, where he's landing is where he started his letter. 
He's going to talk about prayer and where we go in the midst of suffering. And so here's where James is taking us this morning. And I absolutely love this. Week in, week out, we just dig into the text. We try and hear what James the author is saying because we believe God is actually inspiring these very words. Is anyone among you suffering? Let them pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let them sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. And so what I love about this process, if, if you're reading that and there's questions that, are, that start flying through your mind, what might they be? I took time to write a few of them down. Here's some of the questions that at least I was asking when I was reading this thing. So whose faith brings the healing? Do you guys love this stuff? Man, I can't get enough of this stuff. What it feels like is sometimes we don't read the Bible because it just feels so distant and unaccessible and that I just feel bored out of my mind when I read it. Instead, these are the questions that start getting elicited from the text. Can our physical sickness be caused by sin? Can prayer change God's mind? And what about the prayer of a righteous person makes that prayer effective? Do, do you have to go to the elders to have a shot at having your sickness healed? Is getting prayer to answer simply a matter of marshalling enough faith? Is James saying that prayer of faith will inevitably bring about healing every time because of a certain formula? And, and are we praying for things that God's already determined? And if God has all the power, how does prayer have power? How's the confession of our sins related to prayer? What, what do we need to do to get more of our prayers answered? To just tell me the formula, I'll do it. What is, James says, the prayer of a faith heals? What is that then? I, I want that. And what causes the person to be forgiven? So I feel like all these questions start to erupt from the text. And so I do this from time to time. I ask you, test this. So this morning, as we go through this, I, I think this is a tough text. Test this as we walk through it. What's James trying to say to us? And, and here's the big idea. Because we could get lost in all those layers. Here's the big idea I think James has for us. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And then call the elders and let them pray. And then the prayer of faith will save you. And then therefore confess your sins and so pray for one another. And the prayer of a righteous person has great power just like Elijah. Elijah prayed. And then he prayed again. And so as we walk through this, I don't know what the thing is for you that's top of mind, the thing you're going to bed thinking about, the thing you wake up thinking about. Here's James' encouragement to his readers. He says, pray with desperate dependence on the God who is actively working in the midst of our circumstances. And so here's, here's where we're going this morning, that we should pray in all circumstances. And we should pray each for ourselves. And that sometimes, sometimes we go to the elders and ask for prayer in the midst of our circumstances, but that we also pray for one another in the context of smaller, more intimate settings, and that we should be confident that our prayers make a difference. So with that, pray with me as we hear from God through his word and ask him to reveal himself this morning. God, you are so good.
Thank you for your work in our lives. Thank you for what you're doing in and around our community and whatever that is for us that we are pressed by emotionally, physically, spiritually, God, that you are going to reveal yourself a little more fully this morning in that area in our lives. Thank you, Jesus. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. So here's where James starts. We should pray in all circumstances. Here's what he says. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And so that idea of suffering, what is that? If you remember back to James 1, we had a definition, and it was called the gap. This gap that exists between our actual state and our desired state. That I have desires in my life, and I still remember back with Casey, when we were going through our fertility treatments, we had three efforts where in our actual state, it was not working the way we had planned. The fertility doctor said, man, everything's working great. That those little sperm and eggs, they're sitting on a cloud, and it's just like the perfect scenario for these things to work, but it's just not working. And we still had eggs left to continue, but we stopped, and he said, I don't know why it's working. We said, we do. <laughs> we understand that God and his sovereignty is not allowing this circumstance to be alleviated in, in the way we had intended, and yet we can trust him in our actual state. We understand why it's not happening. And so often it feels like prayer in the midst of our circumstances is that often our first response or last resort. Because we're modern people, right? We understand how the world works. I mean, I understand that those, those people, like in the medieval times, they prayed, but we're modern, enlightened people. We understand. You go to the fertility doctor so you can have him do his magic. We understand you go to the doctor. There's psychologists. We understand these emotional, spiritual, physical pains. You just go get them solved. And yet, James is saying, is anyone among you suffering? Let them pray. Is that often our first response or our last resort? If you're anything like me, I often wait to the last minute to, to bring God into the circumstances of my life. That pain, that, that, that forgiveness that could heal a relationship, my heart is often just filled with bitterness and anger. And yet God wants to bring restoration those chronic headaches that just seem to never go away. David, I've prayed over and over. Nothing's changed. James, relentless encouragement to us as he finishes his letter, pray. If anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. And so here seems to be the natural cycle in life. Does this look familiar? No? Yes? Some of you were awake. The barbecue's happening this afternoon. The NBA finals are on later. Does this look familiar? Yes. So this is the natural cycle of life, right? Everyone in life, we encounter challenges. How do we know it's a challenge? We feel pain. There's pain that starts to hit our life. And usually when we experience that pain, what happens? There's some sadness, some bitterness. There's an emotion that accompanies that pain. And then what happens? Sometimes the circumstance is left incomplete and we're unaware. I experience the tragedy of what's happening in Texas right now, and I go, God, what, where are you in the midst of this pain? Because I am having a hard time seeing it. And then just as quickly as those come, what happens? The next trial. For those that treasure Jesus, James is saying, here's the perspective we ought to have in this. The trial comes. How do you know it's a trial? Because there's pain. Thank you, Katie accompanied by an emotion. 
And then what sometimes happens in the person of faith's life. We see God work. And we go, God, now I have greater clarity on how that happened. I wouldn't have the beautiful family I'd have, but for God intervening in that way, in that space. And now God in his grace has provided us an incredible family. We can see it. And what is, what is the emotion that usually accompanies that completion? Joy. Yeah. And so James is saying, is anyone among you suffering? <laughs> he told us earlier, count it all joy. And then we start working that backwards. Is God actually in this? And I start experiencing joy and sadness simultaneously, even in the incompletion of the circumstance. And then so much so that even on the onset of a trial, there's actually joy and a conviction that God is at work in all these circumstances of life. And so James says, is anyone among you suffering? Are you going through challenges, general sense suffering that you can't quite comprehend? Where's the first place you should go? James says, pray. Is anyone among you suffering? And if anyone is cheered, let him sing praise. When positive things happen in your life, in all the things in life, when positive things happen, is your natural inclination to thank God for the circumstances that are providing happiness and cheer? Or do we only run as a last resort in the midst of the pain? James says, if anyone is cheerful, let him also sing praise. We should pray in all circumstance. And he continues, who prays? Do you need to? I was just standing in the, I feel, standing somewhere and they go, oh yeah, David, you're the pastor. You can pray for us, right? James says, let each one pray. Here's what he says. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. I love this quote. There's a guy named Eugene Peterson and I love the way he, he shattered my paradigm a, a while back about how prayer is working. Here's how he describes it. The most central thing we are doing is to teach people to pray. This is the genius. This is our genius as Christians. This access to God, this life of intimacy with God. The Christian presence needs to be a praying presence. I do not mean simply praying for people, although that is involved. I mean teaching them to pray. Helping them to listen to what God is saying. Helping them to form an adequate response. Teaching people to pray is teaching them to treat all occasions of their lives at home, in our neighborhoods, in our work, all occasions of our lives as the altars in which we receive his gifts. He continues, prayer is a life that you are immersed in. It is the interiorness of our life in relationship to God who has spoken to us so deep within us. There is a dialogic reality, a dialogue. God has spoken life into being and we answer it. This is the way our life is. As our life enters this lively world, this revelation, prayer is living our life now in response to that. So often when I think of prayer, here's how he says, prayer cannot be confined to a certain period of time. It is only nurtured in those disciplines and we realize certain aspects of it during those times. At one point, I realized that when I'm spending time in the external act of prayer, where someone could see through a knothole I was praying, what does he say? He says it wasn't prayer. I'm not really praying, then I'm just getting ready to pray. When I get up off my knees or out of my chair at eight o'clock, that's when I start praying. The other time of, of saying my prayers is just the time I spend getting ready to pray. It is getting rid of distractions and making predecided things about the day that give me room so that I'm not swallowed up by everyone else's agenda. Do you feel busy in life? Do you feel like there's so many things bombarding you and crowding your attention, soaking up all your time? You, you have no room to actually be present to see what God might be doing in and through those circumstances. 
because they're so near to you. Freeing ourselves up so that we can respond to God in our Monday to Saturday. That we pray. We pray in all circumstances. And we pray for ourselves. And we should sometimes ask the elders to pray for us. Here's what James says. Is anyone among you suffering? Let them pray. Is there a physical ailment that is still just weighing on you and you, you can't seem to get around it? Is there a relationship, a loss, there is grief just so close that is so debilitating? Let them pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let them sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? And so this, just last week, we talked about our doctrinal statement. And so this would be one where, depending on your view of spiritual gifts, you'd land in two different places. Is anyone among you sick? The language is to be weak. And so some people take that to mean spiritual weakness, spiritual sickness. And so they'll, they'll step away from physical healing and leave it in the spiritual realm. But if you look at the other texts surrounding it, to be weak, if it's talking about spiritual sickness, there's usually a caveat that gives you a contextual clue that says he's talking about spiritual sickness. Where most commentators take this, he's talking about physical sickness. Is anyone among you sick? Is there, is there a physical ailment that, that is preventing you from what? From showing up in a, in a gathering like this. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. What does he say? How might the elders know if someone is experiencing pain? They tell come, come on, Rhonda. They tell yeah, how, how does he know? Does, does the pastor, do the elders have a premonition of who might be sick and might need prayer? He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders and let them pray over him. That these spiritual leaders in a church family, the highest form of leadership in a local church family, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And then he says this, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And so, so what is this oil talking about? What is that? And so this is, this is from an old Greek prof of mine back in seminary. His name's Darian Lockett. And I love just the simplicity of which he developed. He said, you know, there's a practical purpose that some take this. They say it's just medicinal. That, that people who were sick would come and have oil as a, a medical practice uh, rubbed on them. And so it reflected, again, just a practice where, where this was used medicinally. Or was it used when James is referencing, is this more a spiritual practice, a religious practice? Is it a sacramental practice? That the oil itself possesses a mediating divine power. And so the Roman Catholic Church began instituting one of their sacraments called the, sac the Sacrament of Extreme Unction, where they, the priests, would come and give last rites and pray over the dead. Now, here's the challenge with that. James doesn't seem to be talking about death. He seems to be talking about life and healing. And so, so where we land around here, seeing it more as symbolic, where anointing frequently symbolizes the consecration of persons or things for God's use or service. And so given James' Old Testament background and his Jewish background, he now is instructing this as a symbol where elders anoint the sick person in order to vividly show how that person is being set apart for God's special attention in prayer. 
that is an act as a symbol. So we practice this around here. If someone brings a concern, the elders will anoint their head with oil and pray over them in a symbolic way of, of asking God to intercede. Not because the elders have some power of healing, but because God in his infinite wisdom is praying. And we're going to develop that. Or as we pray, God in his infinite wisdom is stepping in to the circumstance. We're going to see that here in a second. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then what happens? And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Do you guys love this stuff? Sticky can't get enough of this stuff, right? Because this guides our life, guides our decisions, guides our practice, and ideally guides our Monday to Saturday. We're watching a culture that is shifting from a conviction that Jesus and Jesus alone sits on the throne of their heart. And so for Christians, I think there's a simplicity to say, man, help me understand what anchors your convictions. Where do you find identity? Where do you find purpose? So here's what the elders are praying. They pray the prayer of faith, and, it, and James says it will save the one who is sick. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So somehow there could be, he's not saying exclusively, but could be an element of unrepentant sin that's creating these physical weaknesses. What a concept. We could spend time talking about that later if you want. But what is the prayer of faith? And so I had a conversation with my, with my uh, father-in-law recently, and we just walked through this. The prayer of faith. What is James not saying about the prayer of faith? I don't think he's saying, just have more faith. The reason you're not getting better is because you don't have enough faith. If you just mustered up the faith you have, if you just had more passion and maybe ran around on the stage, then you'd be healed. I don't think James is saying that. that that's actually a destructive way of speaking about some of the, the hurt or pain someone might be experiencing. A few weeks ago, we did a panel where we talked about depression. Can Christians have this state be, be in a state of depression? Might some of the tools in our communities be accessible in addition to this? Absolutely. So what James isn't saying is just have more faith. So what is he saying? What is the prayer of faith? It's the communication with God that flows out from our ever-growing conviction about who God is. And I, I want to detail a few ideas. So what is this prayer of faith that the elders pray over someone who might come to them? It's this communication with God that flows from our ever-growing conviction about God that what? That he exists. That there is a God who governs this reality. That he exists. That, that we are looking for him to guide and lead according to what? His sovereign power and limitless, limitless power and sovereign will. And what I love, where we see A.W. Tozer in a book all about the attributes of God, he starts his book this way. He says, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Yeah, but David, there's a Celtics and Heat game this afternoon. I don't know if you know this, but it's a pretty important game. Yeah, there's, a lot, there's a great barbecue that I'm going to head to in a little bit if you just hurried this thing up. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And also, this God has limitless power and is always acting to promote his glory. Here's how the biblical authors talk about this reality. Samuel, for the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? Why will God not give up on his people? Why? For his great namesake. He will not compromise on his glory because it is to please the Lord to make you a people for himself. 
Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That God is acting for his glory and he's attached our good to the accomplishment of his glory. It is the communication of God that flows from our ever-growing conviction that God exists, has limitless power, and is always acting to promote his glory and his abounding love for us. Here's how the biblical authors pray towards that end. Samuel, in 12, just before that verse, Israel has wanted a king. And God gave them Saul because of their hardness of heart. And here's Samuel's encouragement to them. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Wait, I, I thought if I've done evil, I ought to be afraid. Instead, Samuel gives the most profound encouragement. This is the gospel. Do not be afraid. Though you've done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people. That God promoting his glory is abounding with love. The psalmist says this, For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. What is the prayer of faith? That God exists, has limitless power, always promoting his glory and abounding in love for us. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And we just read this in 1 Peter last year, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This prayer of faith that the elders pray, that we pray, is the communication with God that flows from our ever-growing conviction that God exists with limitless power, acting for his glory, and is an abounding in love for us, and is working for our good. Those circumstances that seem ever-present when I wake up and when I go to bed, the challenges with my kids, the grief and the loss and pain that I'm experiencing, the physical ailments that I just can't seem to get around vocationally, God is at work. Here's what he says. James, finishing his letter where he began, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know what? Man, these testings are actually drawing us to experience more of him. He's working for our good. And let the steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Man, but when I experience challenges, you know how I know God's working? My circumstances feel a lot better than what I'm in. <laughs> and yet God, in this prayer of faith, it's not primarily about changing our circumstances. Instead, as we pray this prayer of faith, God wants us to join him in his mission and to empower us to forgive others as evidence of our forgiveness. That as we pray, James describes this prayer of faith, it's not primarily about alleviating the pain in our circumstances. Instead, continuing to get a sense that God is inviting us into what he's up to. As we 
forgive others because of what's taking place in our lives. And so, so we pray. Here's a few of the ways that the biblical authors call us to this reality. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that my Father will be glorified. If you ask of anything in my name, I will do it. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done to you. And just a few weeks ago in James, James said, you do not have because you do not ask. Is prayer our first response or our last resort? <laughs> do, do we often wait till the very last minute and then we say, God, will you just rescue me from this? Or are we pleading with God for his glory to be accomplished in and around us? He's gladly working for our good and we treasure him above anything else this life has to offer. So, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. And so we pray in all circumstances. First response or last resort. And we each pray for ourselves and sometimes we ask the elders and we should pray for one another is what James calls us to. Here's what he says. Pick it up in verse 17. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That when we gather, as we pray, we are actually interceding for others on their behalf that God would act and move in their life. And he connects confessing our sins in that, in that process. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. There's a gift that when we gather in these more intimate settings, life groups and serve teams, we get to pray for one another and the circumstances in our life and that we should be confident that our prayers actually make a difference. Here's the example, and this floors me. Here's what he says. Are we convinced that when we pray, it actually makes a difference? Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And who's the example he gives? Who's the person he talks about? Elijah. I mean, when I think of Elijah, I don't think, man, this guy's like just similar to me. When I think of Elijah, this guy, this guy did something. James says, he's a guy like you that did this. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. And then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruits. So he's trying to say, do you believe that prayer is a first response, not a last resort, that prayer is the work and that it's effective? And so if we look back at the story of Elijah just briefly, what is it about this guy that we would say, man, I want more of what he had. So about 100 years after King David ruled, Elijah's on the scene and the kingdom of Israel and kingdom of Judah have now separated, northern, southern kingdom, and Ahab is a, just a knucklehead and he's ruling over the northern kingdom and he shifted the practice of their worship and Elijah steps on the scene and begins praying. What does he pray for? As the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my words. Do you think that frustrated Ahab just a little bit? And so he prays and there's a response. Sometimes I scroll through my Twitter feed and I'm just inundated with all the hurt and brokenness that exists all around us. Is my first response to lift my eyes and say, God, where are you working? So Elijah prays and then what happens? 
Ahab's not too happy, and there's this confrontation. And Elijah stands as the only prophet of the Lord in and against 450 prophets of Baal. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left the prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. And so you would imagine in that circumstance, somewhat overwhelming. And yet those are the, God, the odds that God seems to enjoy. <laughs> when we seem to be at the very end of what we can accomplish, God seems to step in in a way that astounds us. With those odds, I would just imagine it's not a comfortable environment to be in, 450 to 1, and yet Elijah steps in. The odds that God seems to enjoy. And Elijah begins to pray, and here's what the biblical author records for us. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as what contained two seas of seed, and he put the wood in order, in order and cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood, and he said, so they're about to call down from their gods to light this fire, light this altar. And here's what Elijah begins doing. Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trenches also with water. And, and I'm floored by Elijah's prayer because I don't know if it's my first step. It's often my last resort. Here's what Elijah says. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. When we pray, are we praying for the alleviation of circumstances, or are we praying that God's glory would be used in and through whatever the circumstances are? Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. That God shows up in this radical way. And here's the response of those looking on. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. James says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And your prayers are effective just as they were for Elijah. That is the power of your words interceding, asking God to move in real, tangible, practical ways. Doesn't often feel, at least where I go, and I need to be reminded, much as James readers, prayer is the work. So here's some encouragement as we go through our week. Do we believe this? We rest in God's sovereign plan. I don't always get to see it as fully as I'd like, but we rest in God's sovereign plan that his will will be done. I was talking to my dad this week, and, uh, and he was reminding me of a circumstance. So I'm an only child, you guys know this? And you were like, yes, we could tell that from the day you arrived three years ago. But my mom, mom and dad got married late in life and had one miscarriage, and then my sister uh, carried to full term, born a day. And so I was just talking, I'd never heard this story. My dad was telling me the story. He's born a day. I, I knew that about my sister, but I never knew about the prayer that mom and dad were praying. Mom had confidence. She said, she said to my dad, Deborah will live. <laughs> Asking, pleading with God that he would bring this daughter to, to life. She was having some significant heart issues. And yet God in his wisdom did not. Did not answer that request. And yet, here's the confidence as I heard my dad retell this story. God's sovereign will will always be done. And God has not only designed the ends, but also the means. 
intimately involved in these requests we bring before him. So what does that mean for us? Does my role even matter? Were mom's prayers of any use? Yes, we have an essential role. Our prayers are part of God's grand design, and God has designed our prayers to help us participate in what he is up to and what he is doing. Our prayers matter. And so we pray. So we pray with desperate dependence on God to move as an expression of our faith and as a primary way through which we are brought closer and deeper in a fellowship with him. And we pray, believing prayer is a means through which God often accomplishes his sovereign will. And there's a mystery in that reality. So often as modern, enlightened people, we discount this mysterious movement in the spiritual world because all I see is brick and mortar and blood and flesh, right? And yet the spiritual world. And so how might that work? If you're not in a life group, get in one of these communities where we actively pray and gather together to hear God move. And if you've never done it, start a prayer journal to see God's faithfulness over the years. And what might you pray for? I'll give you five encouragements. Here's what we might pray for this week. Pray for a greater understanding of God and a deeper desire to to promote his glory. I get sucked into the rabbit hole when I look at my news feed and I need, if I'm in a healthy place, I want to pray for an understanding of God and a deeper desire to promote his glory. But if I'm not in as healthy a place, I actually want to pray for a greater desire to pray. And if I can't even pray for a greater desire, then plead desperately, ask God for a desire to pray for a desire for a deeper understanding. And here's what might, what might get expressed. We pray that God will be glorified in every context by our faithful response in our Monday to Saturday. And that maybe, just maybe, this week, that thing that you're thinking about when you wake up and the thing you go to bed thinking about, that we would pray that God would heal that he would step in in his infinite sovereignty for his glory, step in and would heal for our joy to be experienced and so that others might actually see God's work in and through our lives as we go on our Monday to Saturday. So pray with me as we, as we conclude. God, you are good. Thank you for this community. Thank you for what you're doing in our church family. Thank you for your work. Whatever might be top of mind that, that, is, that is weighing on us, if we're overcome with grief, God, meet us there and help us lift our eyes to you. Not absent from the pain, but seeing, seeing you in the midst of it. If there's a physical issue that we are wrestling with, God, we want to pray desperately that you might alleviate some of that pain ultimately for your glory. If there's relational tension taking place, that you will will sovereignly mend and heal some of those tensions and reveal your grace in the midst of it. Thank you, Jesus. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen.